0: Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Check them out at bunnyslippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Keep warm this winter, keep your feet warm, and uh, if you're over in the Southern Hemisphere, you can check out the cool t-shirts. Anyone can check out the cool t-shirts, but hey, it's summertime down there. And hey, this is Black Clock Audio Tales, hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. Just got back from the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival the other day. Man, was it good. Listen for an upcoming episode about the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival from The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, the other show that's on this podcast feed. And, hey, check it out. We're going to have a new show coming up. It's not going to stay on this podcast feed, but we're going to feature it on this podcast feed at first. It's called Articulate Warbling, or that's not Rave. <laughs> that's not ranting, that's Articulate Warbling, with a uh, past guest uh, Zach Ferguson, author... And, uh, yeah, so why don't you sit back and listen to one of the many stories we're about to tell you for the rest of this week, uh, month, actually. We've got a month of ghost stories. So, you know, if, if you like ghost stories and you want to listen to them, why not go to pgttcm.potbean.com and donate? Become a member of one of our various uh, cults or uh, fan cults. We've got the t-shirt cult we've got the beer cult we've got the advert cult and then we've got the spectral cult for people who just want their names and just want to donate a buck a month i mean hey that's pretty cool and you can always check us out at pgttcm.com pgttcm.potbean.com we're on facebook we're on stitcher i think we're on spotify uh we are on instagram and we are on twitter even though eh, i don't really use it thank you so much and hey go stories rate review subscribe
1: a fight with a ghost by q e d no i never believed much in ghosts said the doctor but i was always rather afraid of them have you ever seen one asked one of the other men the doctor took his cigar out of his mouth and contemplated the ash for a moment or two before replying i have had some rather startling experiences he said after a pause during which the rest of us exchanged glances for the doctor has seen many things and is not averse to talking about them in congenial company. Would you care to hear about one of them? It gives me the cold shivers now to speak of it. We nodded, and the doctor, taking a sip as an antidote to the shivers, began. You remember George Carson, who played for the varsity some years ago, big chap with a light mustache? Well, I saw a good deal of him before he married, While he was reading for the bar in town, it was just after he became engaged to Miss Stoner, who was now Mrs. Carson, that he asked me to go down to a place which his people had taken in the country. Miss Stoner was to be there, and he wanted me to meet her. I could not go down for Christmas Day, as I had promised to be with my people, but as I had been working a bit too hard, and wanted a few days' rest. I decided to run down for a few days about the new year. Woodcote was a pleasant enough place to look at. There were two packs of hounds within easy distance, and it was not far enough from the station to cut you off completely from the morning papers. The Carsons had been lucky, I thought, in coming across such a good house at such a moderate figure. For, as George told me, the owner had been obliged to go abroad for his health— and was anxious not to leave the place empty all the winter it was an old house with big gables and preposterous corners all over the place and you couldn't walk ten paces along any of the passages without tumbling up or down stairs but it had been patched from time to time and among other improvements a big billiard-room had been built out at the back a country-house in the winter without a billiard-room when the frost stops hunting is just, well, not even a gilded prison. The party was a small one. Besides George and his father and mother, there were only a couple of Mrs. Carson, who being somewhere in the early teens didn't count, and Miss Stoner, who of course counted a good deal, and lastly myself. Miss Stoner ought to have been happy, for George Carson, besides being an excellent fellow all around, was by no means a bad match, being an only son with considerable expectations but somehow or other she did not strike me as looking either very well or very happy she gave me the impression of having something on her mind which made her alternately nervous and listless george i fancied noticed it and was puzzled by it for i caught him several times watching her with an anxious and inquiring look but as i was not there as a doctor Of course it was no business of mine, though I discovered the reason before I left Woodcote. The second night after my arrival we had been playing, I remember, a family pool. The rest had gone upstairs to bed. George and I adjourned to a sort of study, which he had arranged upstairs, for a final smoke and a chat before turning in. The study was next to his bedroom, and parted off from it by a curtain— as we were settling down i missed my pipe and remembered that i had laid it down in the billiard-room on principle i never smoke another man's pipe so i lit a candle the house being in darkness and started away in search of my own the house looked awfully weird by the flickering light of a solitary candle and the stairs creaked in a particularly gruesome way behind me just for all the world as though someone were following at my heels I found my pipe where I had expected in the billiard-room, and came back in perhaps a little more hurry than was absolutely necessary. Which, perhaps, explains why I stumbled in the uncertain light over a couple of unforeseen stairs and dropped my candle. Of course it went out. But after little groping I found it. Having no matches with me, I was obliged to feel my way along the banisters for it was so dark that I could not see my hand in front of me. And as I slowly advanced, sliding my hand along the broad balustrade at my side, it suddenly slid over something cold and clammy, which was not a balustrade at all. For stopping dead, and closing my fingers round it for an instant, I felt that I was holding another hand, a skinny, bony hand, which writhed itself slowly from my grasp. And though I could hear nothing and see nothing, I was yet conscious that something was brushing past me and going up the stairs. "'Hi, what's that? Who are you?' I called. There was no answer. I admit that I was in a regular funk. I must have shown it in my face. "'What's the matter?' asked George, as I blundered into his study. "'Oh, nothing,' I answered. Dropped my candle and lost the way. "'But who were you talking to?' "'I was only swearing at the candle,' I replied. "'Oh, I thought perhaps you had seen somebody,' replied George. "'Somehow I did not like to tell him the truth, for fear he would laugh at my nervousness. "'But I determined to keep an eye on my liver, and take a couple of weeks' complete rest. "'That night I woke up several times with the feeling of that confounded hand under my own.' A clammy hand which writhed as my fingers closed upon it. The next morning after breakfast I was in the billiard-room practicing strokes while Carson was over at the stables. Presently the door opened, and Miss Stoner looked in. "'Come in,' I said. "'George will be back from the stables in a few minutes. Meanwhile we can fifty up.' "'I wanted to speak to you,' she said. She was looking very tired and ill.' and I began to think I should not have an an uninterrupted holiday after all. "'Do you believe in ghosts?' she asked, having closed the door and come up to the table, where she stood leaning with both her hands upon it. "'No,' I replied, missing an easy caroom as I remembered my experience of last night. But I believe in fancy. And, supposing then that a person fancied he saw things, is there any remedy?' what do you mean miss stoner i replied looking at her in some surprise do you mean that you fancy i stopped for miss stoner turned away sat down on one of the easy chairs by the wall and burst into tears oh please help me she sobbed i believe i'm going mad i laid down my cue and went over to her look here miss stoner i said taking her hand which was hot and feverish i am a doctor and a friend of george now tell me all about it and i'll do my best to set it right she was in a more or less hysterical condition and her words were freely punctuated by sobs but gradually i managed to elicit from her that nearly every night since she came to woodcote she had been awakened in some mysterious way and had seen a horrible face looking at her from over the top of a screen which stood by the door of her bedroom as soon as she moved the face disappeared which convinced her that the apparition existed only in her imagination that seemed to distress her even more than if she had believed it to be a genuine ghost for she thought her brain was giving way i told her that she was only suffering from a very common symptom of nervous disorder as indeed it was and promised to send a groom into the village to get a prescription made up for her and having made me promise to breathe no word to any one on the subject more especially to george she went away relieved nevertheless i was not quite certain that i had made a correct diagnosis of the case you see i had been rather upset myself not many hours before george was longer than i expected at the stable and i was just going to find him when at the door i met mrs carson can you spare me a moment? she said, as I held open the door for her. I wanted to find you alone. Certainly, Mrs. Carson, with pleasure. An hour, if you wish, I replied. It is so convenient, you know, to have a doctor in the house, she said, with a nervous laugh. Now, I want you to prescribe me a sleeping draught. My nerves are rather out of order, and I don't sleep as I should. Ah, I said. "'Do you see faces, and such like things when you wake?' "'How do you know?' she asked quickly. "'Oh, I inferred from the other symptoms. "'We doctors have to observe all kinds of little things.' "'Well, of course. I know it's only a fancy, "'but it is just as bad as if it were real. "'I assure you it is making me quite ill, "'and I didn't like to mention it to Mr. Carson or to George. "'They would think I was losing my head.' I gave Mrs. Carson the same prescription as I had written for Miss Stoner, though by that time the conviction had grown upon me that there was something wrong which could not be cured by medicine. However, I decided to say nothing to George about the matter at present, for I could hardly utilize the confidence which had been placed in me by Miss Stoner and Mrs. Carson, and my own experience of the night before would scarcely have appeared convincing to him. BUT I DETERMINED THAT ON THE NEXT DAY, WHICH WAS SUNDAY, I WOULD INVENT AN EXCUSE FOR STAYING AT HOME FROM CHURCH AND MAKE SOME EXPLORATIONS IN THE HOUSE. THERE WAS OBVIOUSLY SOME MYSTERY AT WORK WHICH WANTED CLEARING UP. WE ALL SAT UP RATHER LATE THAT NIGHT. THERE SEEMED TO BE A GENERAL DISINCLINATION TO GO TO BED. WE STAYED ALL TOGETHER IN THE BILLIARD-ROOM UNTIL NEARLY MIDNIGHT, AND THEN LOITERED ABOUT IN THE HALL talking in an aimless sort of fashion but at last mrs carson said good-night with a confidential nod to me and miss stoner murmured so many thanks i've got it and they both went upstairs george and i parted in the corridor above our rooms were opposite each other i did not begin undressing at once but sat down and tried to piece together some theory to account for the uncanniness of things BUT THE MORE I THOUGHT, THE MORE PERPLEXING IT BECAME. THERE WAS NO DOUBT WHATEVER THAT I HAD PUT MY HAND ON SOMETHING EXTREMELY ALIVE AND EXTREMELY UNPLEASANT THE NIGHT BEFORE. THE BARE RECOLLECTION OF IT MADE ME SHUDDER. WHAT LIVING THING COULD POSSIBLY BE CREEPING ABOUT THE HOUSE IN THE DARK? IT WAS A MAN'S HAND, OF THAT I WAS CERTAIN FROM THE SIZE OF IT. GEORGE CARSON WAS OUT OF THE QUESTION, FOR HE WAS IN HIS ROOM ALL THE TIME nor was it likely that mr carson senior would steal about his own house in his socks and refuse to answer when spoken to the only other man in the house was an eminently respectable-looking butler and his hand as i had noted particularly when he poured out my wine at dinner was plump and soft whereas the mysterious hand on the balustrade was thin and bony and then what was the real explanation of the face which had appeared to the two ladies indigestion might have explained either singly extraordinary coincidences do sometimes occur but it seemed too extraordinary that a couple of ladies one old and one young should suffer from the same indigestion in the same house at the same time and with the same symptoms on the whole i did not feel at all comfortable and look carefully in all the cupboards and recesses as well as under the bed before starting to undress then i went to the door intending to lock it just as my hand was upon the key i heard a soft step in the corridor outside accompanied by a sound which was something between a sigh and a groan very faint but quite unmistakable and under the circumstances discomposing It might, of course, be George. Anyhow, I decided to look and see. I turned the handle gently and opened the door. There was nothing to be seen in the corridor. But on the opposite side I could see a door open, and George's head peeping round the corner. "'Hello,' he said. "'Hello,' I replied. "'Was that you walking up the passage?' he asked. "'No,' I answered. "'I thought it might be you.' THEN WHO THE DEVIL WAS IT? HE SAID. I'LL SWEAR I HEARD SOMEONE. THERE WAS SILENCE FOR A FEW MOMENTS. I WAS WONDERING WHETHER I'D STILL BETTER TELL HIM OF THE FRIGHT i had ALREADY HAD, WHEN HE SPOKE AGAIN. I SAY, JUST COME IN HERE FOR A BIT, OLD FELLOW. I WANT TO SPEAK TO YOU. I STEPPED ACROSS THE PASSAGE, AND WE WENT TOGETHER INTO THE LITTLE STUDY WHICH ADJOINED HIS BEDROOM. LOOK HERE, HE SAID, POKING UP THE FIRE, WHICH WAS BURNING LOW. "'Doesn't it strike you that there's something very odd about this house?' "'You mean—' "'Well, I wouldn't say anything about it to the master or Miss Stoner for fear of frightening them. All the same, scarcely a night passes but I hear curious footsteps on the stairs. "'You've heard them yourself, haven't you?' "'Now you mention it,' I said. "'I confess I have.' "'And what is more,' he continued, "'I was sitting here two nights ago half asleep.' "'And it seems ridiculous, I know. But it's a fact. I suddenly saw a horrible face glaring at me from between those curtains behind you. It was gone in a moment, but I saw it as plainly as I see you.' I moved my seat uneasily. "'Did you look in your bedroom or in the passage?' I asked. "'Yes, at once,' he replied. "'There was nothing to be seen.' BUT TWICE AGAIN THAT NIGHT I HEARD FOOTSTEPS PASSING. GOOD GOD! HE STARTED UP IN HIS CHAIR, STARING STRAIGHT OVER MY SHOULDER. I TURNED QUICKLY AND SAW THE CURTAINS, WHICH PARTED OFF THE BEDROOM, SWING TOGETHER. WHAT IS IT? I ASKED BREATHLESSLY. I SAW IT AGAIN. THE SAME FACE, BETWEEN THE CURTAINS. I TORE THE CURTAINS ASIDE AND RUSHED INTO THE NEXT ROOM. IT WAS EMPTY. The lamp was burning upon a side table, and the door was open, just as George had left it. In the passage outside all was quiet. I came back into the study and found George running his fingers through his hair in perplexity. "'There is clearly one person too many in the house,' I said. "'I think we ought to draw the place and find out who it is.' "'All right,' he said, picking up the poker from the fireplace.' If it's anything made of flesh and blood, this will be useful, and if not—' He stopped short, for at that instant the most awful shriek of horror rang through the house, a shriek of wild, uncontrollable terror, such as I had never heard before, and I never hoped to hear again. One moment we stood staring at each other, dumbfounded. The next George Carson had dashed out of the room and down the corridor to the stairs— i followed close behind him for we both knew that none but a woman in mortal fear would shriek like that and that that woman was miss stoner down the stairs we tumbled pell-mell in the darkness but before i reached the landing below where miss stoner's room was i felt as i had felt that evening before something brushed swiftly past me as i ran i turned and caught at it in the dark but my hand gripped only empty air i was just about to turn back and follow it when a cry from george arrested me and looking down i saw him standing over the prostrate form of miss stoner the door of her room was open and by the moonlight which streamed into the room i could see her lying in her white night-dress across the threshold what followed in the next few minutes i can scarcely recall with accuracy the whole house was aroused by the poor girl's awful shriek she was quite unconscious when we came upon her but she revived more or less as soon as mrs carson and one of the terrified servants had lifted her into bed again nothing intelligible could be gathered from her however as to the cause of her fright she only repeated hysterically again and again oh the face the face when i saw i could do her no further good for the present i took george by the arm and led him out of the room ''Look here, George,'' I said. ''We must find out the reason of this at once. I am certain I felt something go by me as I came downstairs. Now does that staircase lead anywhere but to our rooms?'' George considered for a moment. ''Yes,'' he replied. ''There is a door at the end of the passage which leads up into a sort of lumber-room. Then we'll explore it,'' I said. ''For my part I can't go to sleep until I've got to the bottom of this.'' get the man to bring a lantern along. The butler looked as though he didn't half like the Enterprise, and to tell the truth, no more did I. It was the uncanniest job I ever undertook. However, we started, the three of us. First of all, we searched the rooms on the floor above, where George and I slept. Everything was just as we had left it. Then I pushed open the door at the end of the corridor. A crazy-looking staircase led up into the darkness. We went cautiously up, I first with a candle, then George, and last of all the butler with a lantern. At the top we stepped into a big, rather low room, with beams across the ceiling, and a rough, uneven floor. Our lights threw strange shadows into the corners, and more than once I stared at what looked like a crouching human figure. We searched every corner. There was nothing to be seen but a few old boxes, a roll or two of matting, and some broken chairs. But in the far corner George pointed out to me a rickety ladder which ended in a closed trap door. Just then I distinctly heard the curious, half-groaning, half-sighing sound which had already puzzled me in the corridor below. We stood still and looked at one another. We all heard the sound whatever it is it's up there i said the question is who's going up george put his candle down upon the floor and stepped upon the ladder it cracked beneath his weight he stopped come down it won't bear you i said i shall have to go i don't know that i was ever in such a queer funk as i was while i slowly mounted that ladder and pushed open the trap door i had formed no clear idea of what i expected to find there certainly i was not prepared for what happened for no sooner was the trap-door fully open than there fell literally fell upon me from the darkness above a thing in human shape which kicked and spat and tore at me as i stood clinging to the ladder it lasted but a moment or so but in that moment i lived a lifetime of terror the ladder swayed and cracked beneath me, and I fell to the floor with the thing gripping my throat like a vise. The next instant George had stunned it with a blow from the poker and dragged it off me. It lay upon its back on the floor, a ragged, hideous, loathsome shape. And the mystery was solved. "'But you haven't told us what it really was,' said one of the listeners. The doctor smiled. "'It was the owner of the house,' he replied. He had not gone abroad. He had gone to a private lunatic asylum with homicidal mania upon him. About a fortnight before this he had managed to escape, and having made his way to his former home, had concealed himself with a cunning often shown by lunatics in the loft. I suppose he had found enough to eat in his nightly rambles about the house. The only wonder is he didn't kill someone before he was caught end of story twelve the ghost of the count not far from the alameda in the city of mexico there is a great old stone building in which once lived a very wealthy and wicked spanish count the house has about four floors and ninety rooms more or less The entire fourth floor is rented and occupied by a big American firm, and their bookkeeper, an American girl, has given us the following true account of the ghost that for years haunted the building. The second floor is unoccupied, as no one cares to live there for obvious reasons. And the bottom floor is also unoccupied, save for lumber rooms, empty boxes, and crates and barrels. And last of all is the great patio with its tiled floor where secretly in the night a duel was fought to the death by the wicked count and a famous austrian prince who was one of maximilian's men the count was killed no one knows why the duel was fought some say it was because of a beautiful spanish woman some say it was because of a treasure that the two jointly conveyed and which the count refused to divide with his princely socio and more people, Mexicans, shrug their shoulders if you ask about it, and say, quien sabe. I saw a ghost here last night, Miss James, announces our cashier with much eclat and evident pride. So great is the shock that I gasp, and my pen drops, splattering ink on my nice fresh cuffs, and worse luck, on the ledger page I had just totted up. It is ruined, and I will have to erase it, or something, wretched man. I wish to goodness it had taken you off, I cry, wrathfully, and I look at the bespattered work. Now will you just look here and see what you have done? I wish you and your ghosts were in. Gehenna, he inquires sweetly. I'll fix that. It won't take half a minute. And don't look so stern, else I won't tell you about the Espanto. And you will be sorry if you don't hear about it. It would make such a good story. Then go ahead with it. Well, last night I was waiting for West, he was to meet me here, after which it was our intention to hit the, that is, I mean we were going out together. I nod scornfully, and it seems that while I was patiently waiting here, in my usual sweet-tempered way, the blank idiot had his supper and then lay down to rest himself for a while. You know how delicate he is. Another contemptuous nod unfortunately he forgot the engagement and slept on he says he never awoke until three o'clock and so didn't come thinking i wouldn't be there meantime i also went to sleep and might have snoozed on until three likewise but for the fact that the ghost woke me well do go on i urge the ghost woke me as i said proceeds the simpleton slowly it was passing its cold fingers over my face and moaning Really, it was most extraordinary. At first I didn't know what it was. Then, as I felt the icy fingers stroking my face and heard blood-curdling groans issuing from the darkness, I knew what it was. And I remembered the story of the prince and his little duel down in the patio, and knew it was the ghost of the prince's victim. By the way, you don't know what a funny sensation it is to have a ghost pat your face, Miss James.' PAT NOTHING, I RETORT indignantly. I WONDER YOU ARE NOT ASHAMED TO TELL ME SUCH FIBS. SUCH A tiradiddle. AND AS FOR THE MAN THAT THE PRINCE KILLED DOWNSTAIRS, YOU KNOW AS WELL AS I DO THAT HE WAS TAKEN HOME TO SPAIN AND BURIED THERE. WHY, THEN, SHOULD HE COME BACK HERE, INTO OUR OFFICES AND PAT YOUR FACE? AH, THAT I CAN'T SAY, WITH A SUPERCILIOUS DRAWL. I CAN ONLY ACCOUNT FOR IT BY THINKING THAT THE GHOST HAS GOOD TASTE better than that of some people I know. But honestly, I swear I'm telling you the truth. Cross my heart and hope to die if I'm not. And you don't know how brave I was. I never screamed. In fact, never made a sound. Oh, I was brave. Then what did you do? Sternly. I ran. Por Dios, how I ran. You remember with what a clarity we got down the stairs during the November earthquake? I remember only too distinctly. Well, last night's run wasn't a run, in comparison. It was a disappearance, a flight, a sprint. I went down the four flights of stairs like a streak of blue lightning, and the ghost flew with me. I heard the pattering of its steps and its groans clean down to the patio door, and I assure you I quite thought I had made such an impression that it was actually going home with me and the thought made me feel so weak that I felt perforce obliged to take a, have a, that is, strengthen myself with a cocktail. After which I felt stronger and went home peacefully. But it was an uncanny experience, wasn't it? Was it before or after taking that cocktail? I asked incredulously. And did you take one only, or eleven? I am hard on the man, but he really deserves it. Ghosts, spirits, perhaps but not ghosts whereat his feelings are quite hurted, so much so that he vows he will never tell me anything again i had better read about doubting thomas he never has seen such an unbelieving woman in all his life and if i were only a man he would be tempted to pray that i might see the ghost it would serve me right then wrathfully departs to notice me no more that day not believing the least bit in ghosts i gave the matter no more thought In fact, when you fell heir to a set of books that haven't been posted for nineteen days, and you have to do it all, and get up your trial balance, too, or else give up your Christmas holidays, you haven't much time to think about ghosts or anything else, except entries. And though I had been working fourteen hours per day, the twenty-fourth of December, noon hour, found me with a difference of thirteen dollars and eighty-nine cents the which i of course must locate and straighten out before departing next morning on my week's holiday por supuesto it meant night work nothing else would do and besides our plans had all been made to leave on the eight o'clock train next morning so i would just sit up all night if need be and find the wretched balance and be done with it behold me settled for work that night at seven o'clock in my own office with three lamps burning to keep it from looking dismal and lonely, and books and ledgers and journals piled up two feet high around me. If hard work would locate that nasty, hateful $13.89, it would surely be found. I had told the portero downstairs on the ground floor to try and keep me awake for a time, but if I didn't soon finish the work, I would come down and call him when I was ready to go home. He lived in a little room, all shut off from the rest of the building, so that it was rather difficult to get at him. Besides, he was the very laziest and sleepiest peon possible, and though he was supposed to take care of the building at night, patrolling it so as to keep off the Landrones, he in reality slept so soundly that the last trumpet, much less Mexican robbers, would not have aroused him. And for this very reason... Before settling to my work I was careful to go round and look to locks and bolts myself. Everything was secure, and the door safely fastened, so that if landrones did break through they would have to be in shape to pass through keyholes or possess false keys. With never thought of spirits or poteros, or anything else, beyond the thirteen dollars and eighty-nine cents, I worked and added and re-added and footed up and at eleven o'clock, gracia dios, I had the thirteen dollars all safe, and would have whooped for joy, had I the time. However, I wasn't out of the woods yet, the sum of eighty-nine dollars being often more easy of location than eighty-nine cents. The latter must be found also, before I could have the pleasure of shouting in celebration thereof. At it I went again, After brain-cudgeling and more adding and prayerful thought, I at last had under my thumb that abominable eighty cents. Eureka! Only nine cents out. I could get it all straight and have some sleep, after all. Inspired by which thought I smothered my yawns, and again began to add. I looked at my watch, ten minutes to twelve. Perhaps I could get it fixed before one. I suppose I had worked at the nine cents for about twenty minutes. One of the cash entries looked to me to be an error. I compared it with the voucher. Yes, that was just where the trouble lay. Eleven cents, ten, nine. ST! out went the lights in the twinkling of an eye. As I sat, gaping in my astonishment, out from the pitchy darkness of the room came the most dreary, horrible, blood-curdling groan imaginable. As I sat paralyzed, not daring to breathe, doubting my senses for a moment, and then thinking indignantly that it was some trick of that wretched cashier, I felt long, thin, icy fingers passing gently over my face. Malgame Dios! What a sensation! At first I was afraid to move. Then I nervously tried to brush the icy, bony things away. As fast as I brushed, with my heart beating like a steam hammer, and gasping with deadly fear, the fingers would come back again. A cold wind was blowing over me. Again came that dreadful groan, and too frightened to move or scream, I tumbled in a heap on the floor among the books and ledgers. Then I suppose I fainted. When I regained my senses, I was still in a heap with the ledgers. It was still dark, and I still felt the cold fingers caressing my face. At which I became thoroughly desperate. No ghost should own me. I had laughed at the poor cashier and hinted darkly at cocktails. Pray, what better was I? I scrambled to my feet, the fingers still stroking my face. I must address them. What language did they understand, English or Spanish, I wondered. Spanish would doubtless be most suitable, if indeed it was the ghost of the murdered count. Will you do me the favor, Señor Ghost? i started out bravely in my best spanish but with a very trembling voice to inform me what it is you desire is there anything i can do for you because if not i would like very much to be allowed to finish my work which i cannot do if you will pardon my abruptness if i am not alone being the ghost of a gentleman and a diplomat surely he would take the hint and vanish Oh, hala. Perhaps the ghost did not understand my Spanish. At any rate, there was no articulate reply. There was another groan. Again the fingers touched me, and then there was such a mournful sigh that I felt sorry for the poor thing. What could be the matter with it? With my pity, all fear was lost for a moment, and I said to the darkness all about me, What is it that you wish, pobre señor? Can I not aid you? I am not afraid. Let me help you." THE FINGERS MOVED UNCERTAINLY FOR A MOMENT. THEN THE ledgers ALL FELL DOWN, WITH A LOUD BANG. A COLD HAND CAUGHT MINE, VERY GENTLY. I TRIED NOT TO FEEL FRIGHTENED, BUT IT WAS DIFFICULT, AND I WAS LED OFF BLINDLY THROUGH THE OFFICES. I COULD NOT SEE A THING, NOT A GLIMMER OF LIGHT SHOWED. NOT A SOUND WAS HEARD EXCEPT MY OWN FOOTSTEPS, AND THE FAINT SOUND OF THE INVISIBLE SOMETHING THAT WAS LEADING ME ALONG. There were no more groans, thank goodness, else I should have shrieked and fainted, without a doubt. Only the pattering footsteps and the cold hand that led me on and on. We, the fingers and I, were somehow in the great hall, then on the second floor, and at last on the stairs, going down flight after flight. I knew that I was being led about by the fingers on the tiled floor of the patio, and close to the Poteros Lodge simpleton that he was, sleeping like a log, no doubt, while I was being led about in the black darkness by an invisible hand, and no one to save me. I would have yelled, of course, but for one fact. I found it utterly impossible to speak or move my tongue, being a rare and uncomfortable sensation. But where were we going? Back into the unused lumber-rooms, joining into the patio— "'Nothing there, except barrels and slabs and empty boxes. "'What could the ghost mean? "'He must be utterly demented, surely.' "'In the middle of the first room we paused. "'I had an idea of rushing out and screaming for the potero, "'but abandoned it when I found that my feet wouldn't go. "'I heard steps passing to and fro about the floor, "'and waited, cold and trembling. "'They approached me. "'Again my hand was taken.' and I was led over near the corner of the room. Obedient to the unseen will, I bent down and groped about the floor, guided by the cold fingers holding mine, until I felt something like a tiny ring, set firmly in the floor. I pulled at it faintly, but it did not move, at which the ghost gave a faint sigh. For a second the cold fingers pressed mine, quite affectionately, then released me, and I heard steps passing slowly into the patio, then dying away. Where was it going, and what on earth did it all mean? But I was so tired and wrought up, I tried to find the door, but couldn't. The cashier would have been revenged could he have seen me stupidly fumbling at a barrel thinking it was the door. And at last, too fatigued and sleepy to stand, I dropped down on the cold stone floor and went to sleep. I must have slept for some hours, for when I awoke the light of dawn was coming in at the window, and I sat up and wondered if I had taken leave of my senses during the night. What on earth could I be doing here in the lumber-room? Then, like a flash, I remembered, and half-unconsciously crept about on the floor, seeking the small ring. There it was. I caught it and jerked at it hard. Hey, presto change! for it seemed to me that the entire floor was giving way. There was a sliding, crashing sound, and I found myself hanging on for dear life to a barrel that, fortunately, retained its equilibrium, and with my feet dangling into space. Down below me was a small, stone-floored room, with big boxes and small ones ranged about the walls. Treasure! Like a flash the thought struck me, AND WITH ONE LEAP I WAS DOWN IN THE SECRET ROOM GAZING ABOUT AT THE BOXES. BUT ALAS, UPON INVESTIGATION, THE BIGGEST CHESTS PROVED EMPTY. THE BAD, WICKED COUNT. NO WONDER HE COULDN'T REST IN HIS SPANISH GRAVE, BUT MUST COME BACK TO THE SCENE OF HIS WICKEDNESS AND DECEIT TO MAKE REPARATION. BUT THE SMALLER CHESTS WERE LITERALLY CRAMMED WITH ALL SORTS OF THINGS. BIG, HEAVY SPANISH COINS, IN GOLD AND SILVER. GOLD AND SILVER DINNER SERVICES, WITH THE CREST OF THE UNFORTUNATE EMPEROR, MAGNIFICENT PIECES OF JEWELLED ARMOUR AND WEAPONS, BEAUTIFUL JEWELRY AND LOOSE PRECIOUS STONES. I DELIBERATELY SELECTED handfuls OF THE LATTER, GIVING MY PREFERENCE TO THE DIAMONDS AND PEARLS. I HAD ALWAYS HAD A TASTE FOR THEM, WHICH I HAD NEVER BEEN BEFORE ABLE TO GRATIFY, AND PACKED THEM IN A WOODEN BOX THAT I FOUND IN THE LUMBER-ROOM the gold and dinner services and armour etc i left as they were being rather cumbersome and carried off rejoicing my big box of diamonds and pearls and other jewellery needless to say we didn't go away for the holidays on the eight o'clock train but i did come down to the office and proceed to locate my missing nine cents after which i unfolded the tale of the ghost and treasure only keeping quiet the matter of my private loot, of which I was hardly glad afterwards. For when the government learned of the find, what do you suppose they offered me for going about with the ghost and discovering that secret room and treasure? Ten thousand dollars! When I refused, stating that I would take merely as my reward one of the gold dinner services, the greedy things objected at first, but I finally had my way, and to this very day they have no idea that i even i have all the beautiful jewels wouldn't they be furious if they knew it but they aren't apt to unless they learn english and read this story which isn't likely end of story 13